0: Life throws you a lot of different things and nothing is forever. And it's okay to say, yeah, you know, this was a fun ride, but I think I want to go and try that again. The other thing is circumstances have changed. You have changed as a human being. The experience you may have had in advertising or in corporate or in finance five, six, seven years ago is different today and will definitely be different moving forward. If I have to say anything, it's thank God COVID has given us a clean canvas.
1: What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mike Pollard. I, I feel like in these times you really have to generate energy by yourself, don't you? are sort of, locked in these small places and it's like, got to find the energy from somewhere, but it's great to see your faces today. I have Monica Duran and Serena Berra and Matilde Recon-Perez. Monica and uh, Serena are freelance consultants who are frequently around the Miami area today. Serena is in North Carolina. Welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: And we have Mathilde, by way of Lisbon, currently in London, who's a category manager at uh, Mondelēz. Welcome, Mathilde. I don't know why I separated the three of you into. It. Well, I've already like put you against each other for some reason. <laughs> see, Not what, at all. see what? See what countries the side do. of the ocean.
2: <laughs> there you
3: go. Hey, Mark. <laughs>
1: hey, countries aren't even real. Someone made up that idea. It's kind of amazing. And then and now it's now it's how we're categorizing it categorizing each other so we're going to talk about strategy careers today and I think one of the themes that I really wanted to get into in a deeper way it's going to start esoteric it might start esoteric it depends what you say a deeper way is this sense of these careers that we when we start out might think are going to be very linear and then either because of opportunities we chase job loss uh, relationships health issues in the family all of a sudden, there can be reality check. Maybe that linear path no longer seems to exist, and we wonder what next. And so we can feel quite in between. And Serena, I, I want to direct the first question to you because this is something that we've discussed. In that you had a pretty prolific advertising life. Mm-hmm. You were in a bunch of different agencies, and I think you and Monica have both had time at YNR. Mm-hmm. And then you're we had a couple of uh, professorships or teaching experiences. You were a teacher, you're an adjunct professor in in Cairo, yeah. right, at the Cairo Ad School and Miami Ad School. Mm-hmm. And you made decision to follow your partner's career, right?
2: Well, the partner's career came before teaching. Quite honestly, that was that segue. Mm-hmm.
1: Tell us about what that's like. Uh, and I and I ask that because often, especially in America, people want to know what. If if you're in a relationship and if it's a marriage, uh, they want to know whether you both work, and you know, because they're trying to work out what they want to do and how much money you're making and all this sort of stuff. But there's usually an expectation that there are two working parents, right? So, as someone who was in the the New York advertising system, then to uh, follow a partner's career, how did that feel at the time?
2: It felt like life. It just life intervened. It wasn't my grand plan. I was never going to be a stay-at-home mom. I I had just had a baby. I had just returned to work. And I was about to, and I returned, you know, I think it's important to say in this environment too, I had very strong and supportive women running my businesses and gave me sort of a lot in return for when I came back. Um, I, you know, it was kind of perfect. I had a promotion, a new um, assignment, Fridays kind of whispering off, but definitely from home. Then life intervened. You know, my husband got a great, a better job offer in Miami. And it just made sense to, to take that, quite honestly. And then it made even more sense to stay home with my eight-month-old in the city that I didn't know which end was up. I didn't know how to raise a child. I mean, I, when I had gone back to work, it was like, I have to go back to work so the professional nanny who knows what they're doing can raise my son, you know, mm-hmm. instead of recognizing my role, you know. And uh, I, think, I think life intervened, but I'm grateful for it because, I, like I shared with you, I would have never known my son. It doesn't mean that it's not great to work. My, I was a latchkey kid, and I, I have a lot of positives from that as well. And I worry about some of the shortcomings from being home that I might be give, have given my son. But at the end of the day, you just have to reinvent. And luckily, a strategy career helps you do that. And luckily, the Miami Ad School was there for me to start teaching and sort of grow in that area uh, right when I moved. So that was helpful. Yeah,
1: yeah learning and teaching appear quite frequently on people's cvs as a way to kind of explore themselves you know steady themselves and work out what they're about monica you've done a bit of teaching as well i'm kind of curious about the role of teaching in your life monica when you felt a bit in between
0: i it's a great question actually i've um i feel like teaching is an innate ability that i have it's um a bit of a vocation or a calling but it's something that that i've not found to be an additional stream of revenue, right? I always thought teaching would be an additional stream of revenue and everyone kind of golfs at me. It's like, it's not a money-making career, stay away from it. But you have a, I felt a very deep passion and vocation in teaching at the same time when I've had teams. So sometimes when, when people tell you there's no money in that, you, you turn it off and you're like, well, it'll be a passion and it's something I like and it'll be there. But what I found in my, in my journey was that when I had teams, especially younger teams, we'd be sitting, talking, brainstorming, and I would go down a rabbit hole and say, no, we, we need to do it this way. Or, or I would start explaining marketing, shopper marketing, multicultural marketing. I would get into the nitty gritty of it. And all of a sudden I had you know a, a forum of, of my team members looking at me and saying, every time we sit down and talk to you, it feels like we're going to a marketing class. And I've had that happen to me several times where people are either grateful um, or they, they end a conversation saying every time we, we speak with you, we feel like we've learned something new. That to me is very gratifying. So I think it's, it's a little bit more, you know, feel good in my, in my world. Um, I've opened myself up to giving free lectures. Um, when I've presented within the agencies or IAT partnerships or whatever, there have been opportunities where um, somebody has approached me afterwards and said, I really liked what you presented. Would you like to present that to this other group? Or can I take you to, I am an adjunct professor, can I bring you as a guest lecturer to my class? And I've jumped at that. It's like, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm always open for lectures um, within, within my purview scope, whatever I know, I feel like I have uh, an obligation, so to speak, to the world, the universe, to share my knowledge. Um, another concern that I've had, I think, in my journey is that within specifically shopper marketing, it's a very new part of, of marketing. It's only been around for maybe 10, 12, 15 years. Like it's, it's relatively new within marketing, misunderstood. There are a lot of CPGs now that are embracing uh, shopper marketing. Of course, the more established, the, CP, the, the Procter Gamble's and Mondelez's of the world have embraced it for a very long time. It's fully embedded in their structures, but there are other mid-tier and lower-tier CPGs that are up and coming that don't understand shopper marketing or the value of it. So who is teaching those professionals? Like Where are they learning? And there is, there's, I think there's a void there and there's a need for it. There are certain institutions that will give it to you. There's a class here or there that touch, touches upon it. So anytime um, a professor or a professional reaches out and asks if I would like to share my knowledge, I, I feel like I have an obligation to to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. Matilda, I'm going to get onto you in a second, but uh, Serena and Monica, I, I do want to ask this, and usually I don't go into being a mother or a father or what that's like, uh, unless someone really wants to, but I have a feeling that, I, that we know each other and you'll trust me. And the context I bring to The question I'm going to ask is, as a latchkey kid who grew up with a single mom, who ran a singles club, who sometimes taught English to overseas students, who, you know, if the money didn't come in that week from the former partner, you hear about it a lot from a young age, all that kind of stuff, that uh, going from a very relatively structured and intense professional career to being a parent or a mother... Uh, and then trying to work out when to get back in and how to get back in and if you're still good enough to get back in. These are real things that uh, exaggerate or or bring more tension to this feeling of in-between that can hit us in our 30s and 40s when in our 20s we probably thought we had all our shit together and we were on top of the world. Can you talk to us about being a parent and having to sort of re-find your way back into an industry that might not be totally comfortable with making any concessions about not just being a hardcore worker all the time?
2: Sure. I have two examples of that. One was uh, right after a couple of years after I'd moved to Miami, I had the perfect kind of job offering lined up. It was from an old boss uh, and friend, you know, uh, he wasn't at the agency, but it was one of the Know best general market agencies, which are rare in Miami. um, Whereas my skill set, and it was across the street from my son's preschool. You know, and it was you know somebody had vetted me. I I knew a planner in the department, and I remember being on the phone and saying, you know, I can, I'd love it. I I just can't be in the office past three. Let's you know, I was like, but you know, I'll do the work. So let's change the world. You know, and he was, like, well, that's really not going to work. And I realize now, it's not that we had to change the world. It's that the world needed changing, and that's become much more apparent now that this presenteeism that i think has been so pervasive in the industry really is unnecessary in in fact it's kind of crazy given what we do that you have to be in an office to do it. most of what we do and especially when i was in an office all the time and i loved it honestly and i was there all the time i was traveling all the time as well so it just it really actually does especially when this works so well that it doesn't make sense and then when I was ready to actually go back full time, um, which I did a couple of years ago, about four years ago, I went back full time with a commute up to Fort Lauderdale and all that that came with it. I just remember that feeling, you know, because i would trying to make freelance work and that freedom is really important and it's, the flexibility is really important. And all the other work I'd done previously, I valued the flexibility over everything else, but being able to think and contribute, you know, um, but this was a place that was, you know, kind of known for that presenteeism. And honestly, the feeling I had going back to work every day was just, I felt human. And people were like, oh, you feel fulfilled? I'm like, no, it's advertising. I'm, I just feel human, just going to a job every day. I don't, you know, the commute, catching up on that being part of a team again, dealing with all the mishigash that happens at agencies, but getting through it um, was great. But ultimately, yeah, I did end up following my passion and we can talk about more of that later, but that, uh, and it, that's where I am now is back to freelance.
1: So. Did, you, did you feel a little bit guilty about feeling human, even though you weren't with the kids? I feel like there's often a no. bit of guilt associated no. with that. No, I found oh,
2: great. I, finally found, I mean, it took a while. Really cool. I did at the beginning. Yes, of course. I mean, at, the transition was tough on my son. He was eight. So, um, but then you make up for it and you find a way to, to be there. And, I was very clear, too, in my terms when I went back that I I, I said in my interview with the leadership, you know, I'm not going to apologize for my second job. I do the work and I just I have an only child and I need to be home. My husband doesn't have any flexibility in his. And and, you know, this may not be a cultural fit, but and they were willing to try. And actually, they did a lot to support that. And at the end of the day, there was just honestly, I think just too much work that needed to be there on Saturday when. I, there were days, Saturdays, where I would much rather be there than at the soccer field, quite honestly, yeah. but yeah. I couldn't, so, yeah.
1: Okay, so, so Monica, uh, being a parent, being in a relationship, how does that affect your identity and how you then re-enter the industry again?
2: I have a
0: very different perspective because my career started in Latin America, and the expectation from my family, my environment, my society was that I was a woman and a mom and a daughter first, And if I was lucky, then maybe, you know, I could work. And then I was working and divorced. So I was the divorcee and the single mom. And that put me in a whole other bucket. Um, And I I dealt with a lot of societal pressures, similar to the 1950s and 60s in the United States, right? And I'm not talking, and this was relatively recent, maybe 10, 15 years ago, Um, After being an expat for 15 years in South America, I, because of different reasons, decided to come back to the United States. And I have twins. My twins at that time were um, in their, what, they were 14, 15. So they were like in that very difficult teenage stage. Um, And I've always, we've always been a really good threesome. So we've always been the Three Musketeers. And it's been, You know, all for one and one for all. And I told them that I was going to give this a try and see if the United States was going to work for us. So I had to make the hard decision of leaving them with my parents and coming to some sort of an agreement with my ex husband because he actually had to sign, you know, legal documents to allow me to bring them to the US, even though they are US citizens and so forth. They were minors at the time. So I went through a lot of different steps. And it basically came down to ex-husband, unless you are going to be able to support us in this way, then I need to continue to work. It, throughout our divorce process, it got to the point where his lawyer looked at me and said, you are a professional. Um, you can fend for yourself. There is no money for you. And he can take care of one of two children. And I was just flabbergasted. So not uh, not, not working was never a choice, I would say, from a, a a personal standpoint. From a professional standpoint, I think the entire situation did me a, a huge favor because it drove continuity and it drove um, the the need, you know, to support myself and support my children. So when we came to the U.S., I was the single mom and. I think, had it not been for the partnership with my children and the support that they had, and the fact that they responded with such ability, right? They responded with such maturity at 14, 15, 16, 17 to our environment. Everything we did, we did together. Everything we did was was in agreement. Um, Initially in California, then coming to Miami, that was a whole other conversation going through another series of layers of culture shock. They were in the middle of high school. So, parenting to me has always been at the forefront. That was my first job. It was my only job. In Latin America, it was accepted. Here, once you get into a second, third, fourth conversation, it pops up. Like, I've got kids and I need to look at schools and I need to look at houses and the whole thing. So, it was never a secret that I was a parent. And then taking that a layer, I would say, deeper is… The fact that I think that being a parent made me a better manager. It made me more versatile and, and gave me a broader purview. I was managing my home, my children, family expectations in Latin America, uh, my own personal drive and, and career um, expectations here in the US, uh, financial need. Like there were just so many layers there without a whole lot of support. I do give credit to my parents who were always, you know, my, my net. Um, when things didn't work out, when plan B didn't work out, I could always turn to my parents. But then there comes a time when you you can't or Mm -hmm. you probably don't want to, right? When you you need to stand up for yourself if you're alone. Um, And so there are tough times, but I I credit greatly my children for for being my support today. I I can pick up the phone and we can talk about anything and we have each other's back. And and I think that that intimate um, relationship has a breath and a thread to my career and to the teams that I have often managed or, or been able to be a part of, right. When I've been invited as a freelance or a consultant, I walk in with team, like first and foremost, what's your agenda? What do you need from me? Where do I add value? How do we move forward? Because to me, it's about moving forward
1: collectively. I love it. I love it. Matilde. We're coming to London, so I look at your background and what you've done, Matilde, and uh, you seem like a very enterprising person, not only to make that move from Lisbon to London, but the various uh, things that you've done of your own accord, projects, etc. When you look back at what you've done so far, were there in between times or was it always like linear, I know where I'm going, I know what I need to do next?
3: Hey, Mark. Hi, everyone. Honestly, for me, that is a great question. And I feel like it has never been linear and it will never be linear. Nothing in life and in a career is ever linear, especially when you move, um, like Monica was saying, from one city to another, from one country to another. And in my case, I moved from Lisbon to the UK and I spent a couple of years in Manchester studying and working and then managed to get a job in London, moved to London. And the process of being a recent graduate at a country that is not yours is obviously um, a daunting experience as well. And lots of people go through it and we all survive eventually, but it's um but it's it's definitely a hard one. And and for me especially it wasn't linear at all because it's it's mostly education's and educational systems fault, but When you leave, you don't really know what you're going to do. You don't really know where you're going to fall in. And for me, I just started like shooting in every direction being like, where do I want to, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? And I luckily landed somewhere great. I landed at a uh, creative agency working with retail and innovation and trends. For me, that was something that I had touched on in the past before, but I didn't know that You could do it as a job. I didn't even have an idea that, oh, wow, you can actually do that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also always maintained quite a big fascination with, okay, what is happening with the client, what is happening with the bigger companies? So that's why I then decided to, okay, let me check out what's happening in in the
0: companies themselves.
1: Okay. What's it like being a student in a foreign country that you're hoping to stay in? But you only have a temporary visa. Granted, the visa laws seem to be loosening in certain parts of the world to encourage the brains. Uh, I don't mean that in a elitist way, but people who've gone there to study who have good brains uh, to to stay a little bit longer. But it can be pretty scary, right? How did you feel?
3: Yeah, luckily for me, I know that there's a case for for most international students that come to the US or for, or to the UK from from other countries. Luckily for me uh, Brexit hasn't, wasn't still uh, happening. It wasn't still in effect. Um, so I had no issues with, uh, with immigration status whatsoever. But again, like you were saying, it's pretty daunting to imagine, okay, you are here and you are building your journey here because you want to carry on having a life here and building a career here. So it's hard and you have to adjust a lot to the, um, to the culture and what is happening in terms of how do you write your CV, what is it that people want to hear, what is that, how do you behave in interviews, what do you, what is the right answer? Um, I can give you an example, for, um, in Please. where I'm from in, in Portugal, it's quite common for people to put their pictures in their CVs. And I did that at the beginning and I was like, why am I not getting any feedback back? And then I realized that in here in the UK, it's actually a big faux pas and you can't actually do that. So, and I think that's great. And I think that makes a lot of sense. But coming from Lisbon, you were like, oh, okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I okay. saw so Monica and Serena both grimaced when you said that. Um, tell me about the move from the creative agency world into the CPG world now that you're at Mondelez and also into being a category manager. That's one of those jobs that I don't know how many people know about until they actually work with someone who is one or they know someone who is one. So the first question is, tell us about that leap from agency to non-agency. I'd say client side or brand side. It's It's, it's funny. What was that like? Why did you make that decision?
3: So for me, the decision came about, I found a job that I, I, was, I was always trying to see, always on the lookout to see what is happening client side. Um, we were very lucky to have a great portfolio of clients um, in the agency. I worked with everything from real estate portfolio management to supermarkets, to big box retailers, food and drink companies, um, personal care you name it, we have we had great clients. So, so for me it was a sense of I want to understand like when we get a brief, it, it, the brief comes really clear sometimes, <laughs> and um, and you know what you have gotta do, after you execute a certain project. But what thought process went into creating the brief, and why is that a necessity in the company? And for me, that was uh, my main driver in wanting to go client-side, understanding really what was happening in the client. And that went about quite nicely, actually. I looked at a job, I applied for it. I think the interview went pretty well because of my, I think the the strategy knowledge that I had and the research knowledge that I had definitely worked worked to my advantage in the interview. And uh, I've been there ever since.
1: Okay. And then what does a category manager do?
3: Okay, that was a great question because I didn't know before I joined the company either. So I kind of just leaped towards a client-side role. Um, and I had a, a brief idea of what a, car- a category manager does, but um, you never get a full picture until you're actually in it, right? So a category manager, basically, the responsibility of the of category manager is to grow the category and see the different ways to develop in my case, for example, we work with um, one of the categories that Mondelez has, which is chocolate. And we look at ways to um, um, growing the market in terms of business growth, distribution targets, promotional analysis, efficiency, consumer taste, shopper uh, insights, all that sort of thing. And it, 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 you really get down to the nitty gritty of what drives purchase and what drives consumption.
1: And so when you say category, are you talking about growing the category just for that company? Because one of the main ways that I've seen category management work in a company that wasn't used to it was when I did some work at Leibnett with um, Canon Canon cameras and printers. Mm -hmm. And they brought in a category manager for the first time from P&G. Obviously, a lot of category managers come out of that CPG world with really good credentials. And part of the work that uh, this person did was to try to help the stores work out how to sell more printers in general but also more Canon printers and ink. Obviously, that's where the money is. So when you talk about growing the category, you're talking about growing all of chocolate sales in the universe or are you just talking about growing chocolate sales for Mondelez? Uh,
3: No, you're actually bang on on that point. It's actually growing the category overall because uh, if you think about it, if you're a player in a certain category uh, and if the overall category is growing, you're also growing unless you're losing share. So it's always a great thing to to know that the category is growing, that you're, you're propelling that growth from an independent point of view. And that also is very good for the retailers.
1: Mm, interesting, all right. So I'm gonna ask you one by one the following question. And I do want you to think back to a time where you felt a bit in between. It doesn't mean you were crying and felt sad or that's, that's probably what I would do at least on the inside. But I want you to think back to one of the more difficult times when you felt in between. And the question is this, I'll start with you, Serena. Then we'll go Monica, I'm just buying you time. I should ask you the question, and then buy you time, Serena. What was the hardest decision you made? Slash, what was the hardest question you had to answer for yourself during your most in-between time, Serena? I not give me much time. Uh, these deep questions um, that I just quickly enough. ask, deep and dance. then I, I, I'm trying to still trying to buy you time. By the way, if uh, anybody else actually has yeah. a quick answer, you, you ready?
2: Yes, I'll, I'll share the one that I that got me into strategy, quite honestly, because I think it's hopefully the most helpful, particularly to people starting out. So, just like Mathilde was saying, you know, university does not really prepare you for work, and you have to figure that out. And I was an economics major, um, and I, um, I spent a year and I had sales at the best first job I could ever ask for, best first boss, culture, everything. But it's ultimately, sales wasn't right, and I realized I should be in you know, finance and I went into um, um, equity research at a bank and I actually loved a lot about it. And I loved, you know, falling in love with Excel, but I got really lucky that I was working with the marketing strategy group. And, um, but then I was taking art classes and I, and I just, the next steps, like the CFA, you know, it was just like um, kryptonite to me. I just, I, was yeah, the the financial, it's like the equivalent of an MBA. Yeah. I took it's the series seven. It's. Yeah. All, I live yeah. with
1: someone who did two years of it, Some of oh, which that person did pregnant. Yeah, it's intense.
2: It, it drains your soul. And I just didn't want to do that. And I was taking art classes and I just was, I, th- I had basically had a quarter life crisis. I was, you know, and I kind of wasn't doing any of it. Like I just was going to work and thinking that's what I had to do and trying to soak up New York at, at night and taking my art classes and taking a wine course and just finally realized I don't, you know, I don't have to do this and there's gotta be something more creative. And I was very fortunate to have people get me informational interviews. I, I grew up with 30 something, not madman. Madman's better, but 30 something, you know, that had me that interest, you know, get get, get that bug in advertising, which is why I started out in ad sales. And so I just made a bunch of informational interviews and I had in the meantime applied to the account coordinator training program at YNR, you know, with three years of experience and that's what I thought I had to do to get into advertising. And I didn't know about strategy. This was back, you know, they told me, I told them what I wanted to do and what I was good at. And every single interview was like, oh, it sounds like you'd be great for strategy. And, you know, then I dug deeper and everybody I spoke to said I had to have an MBA or come from management consulting to get into that field. And obviously I wasn't there. So I was studying for my GMATs. And then again, I got lucky, I was at a party (laughs) <laughs> and at three in the morning, I met a guy who was like, oh, we're hiring and, you know, junior planner. And I just faxed in my resume the next Yes, Yes, it was that long ago uh, the next day and basically just leapt at the chance to learn. I mean, it was an admin role. And I said to there was two planners, though, running strategy for the whole agency. And I said, I don't mind the title. I don't mind the 40 percent pay cut because I was still living very cheaply with roommates. Um, but I just give me the work and um they agreed and they did and i felt very fortunate but that was really hard to leave a good career think i was doing everything wrong like why couldn't i take the cfa why couldn't i buckle down and just get through it and slog through it you know instead of taking that moment and that leap to really pursue something that you know i ended up really loving i couldn't believe that we got paid for this work Mm -hmm. you know because it was so fascinating and it was everything you know and it is everything that i you know i that i that i love um
1: okay. so. so that so that in betweenness is sort of this coming together of the things you're supposed to do the things that would make sense based on what you're already doing while suspecting that you want to do something more creative but not knowing what it is is that
2: i had no idea and i was yeah, yeah. and honestly i will go out on a limb and share something that you know i'm not too i'm not too proud to share but like the life-changing moment for me was uh, a movie and it was for many people the same movie and it was Shawshank, you know, get busy living or you get busy dying. I saw that movie and I just, I woke up at five the next morning, started running and I started running ever since. I had to be at work at seven 30, you know, and I had, then I started making those calls because I was like, w- this is up to me, you know, and. Sorry, I'm a little like Abed from Community. I see the world through pop culture, so <laughs> forgive me if I make too many references. But totally that, cool. Yeah, that was my turning point. Yeah.
1: Awesome, thank you, Monica. During one of your most in-between times, toughest decision or toughest question? Too that you tried many. To answer?
2: Too many in-between
0: times. Like I've, I think I'm trying to distill what's going to be of greater value for your audience. What happens when your plan B falls apart, right? When you have this, this idea of, I will take in a very strategic planning way, step one, two, and three, and voila, it will happen because this is the path to success. And then the universe, life, politics, your environment, so many things you don't control throws a series of wrenches into that plan. So how do you navigate that? And I think those were very hard deeply difficult learning curves for me i would say um, i'll I'll focus on two one was about three months into um having my children here in the us it was our three-month anniversary in southern california i had purchased a home (laughs) at the height of a market that i didn't even realize was the height of the market Um, and we had this whole plan set out right and they were miserable and i was uncertain about what i was doing with these human beings and wasn't entirely fulfilled with my advertising agency job with my big cpg client i didn't understand a lot of the way that the the agency worked here in the united states or you know, spending enormous amounts of time, six to eight months talking about the same thing over and over and over again and (laughs) testing and retesting. And it's like, when do we actually get into execution and see results and impact? It To me, it was just such a waste of time. And my advertising career in, in, in Latin America was, I mean, it was fast. We moved at a pace that I find more similar to shopper marketing and retail here in the United States. So I was going through my own internal professional struggles, saving face and telling everybody, everybody that it was fantastic and we had a glorious life. And look, I just bought the house and everything is ready to go. And sitting there looking at my kids and seeing how miserable the three of us really were. So we had a heart to heart. It was like, we're only into this three months. Do we pack up and go back? And, and I think that that is a huge lesson for anybody. Uh, Oftentimes, if you're a runner, you'll understand this analogy a little bit more. When you're running, they tell you to listen to your body and to have enough courage to slow down. Because sometimes you need to slow down to then be able to make it throughout that, that journey, right? And, and that is just, you see it in any type of sport, you see it in life. And I, I lived it in that moment where it was like, do I need to turn around and say, we gave it a try. It wasn't what we expected. We're happy. We're going back. And it's mm-hmm. going to be okay. Okay. Um, and each of, each of us expressed our, our opinions, um, our, our emotions, our desires, our vision of what we wanted, and we decided to stay. We had the courage to stay and to stick it out. Um, the economy fell, fell apart around us, and there were layoffs left and right. And it was, again, nobody's fault. Um, and all of a sudden, I saw myself laid off from the advertising industry that I had literally bet on. Um, in an economy that was not good, and the value of my home had plummeted tenfold in a matter of 24 hours. It's somewhat similar to what we're living now in COVID. Um, And I think that as hard as those lessons are, you are, like Matilda said, um, alone, afraid, in an environment that's not natural to you. Um, In my case, I had the responsibility of these two lives, um, and I had a whole social set of friends and family abroad that were looking out to me, waiting for me to fail and hoping I would succ- succeed, as well as that same type of encouragement and, and um, lens from friends and family here in the US. So a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. Yeah. How do you navigate through that? Ultimately, for me, it was, I'm going to live my life focused on me and these children, I, I, I believe that my creator will judge me on calling day on what I did with these two lives and myself and the responsibility that I and the integrity with which I have faced every single one of these challenges. So you, you rise to the challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you're lying at night, looking at the ceiling, not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, what job opportunity is out there, you get to the point where you ask yourself, or at least I did, what is that drawing line? How far can I say yes to get me to the next step? And, and let me not plan 10 years ahead. Let me plan one day ahead and take it one day at a time. And you start breathing a little bit easier. The pressure comes off. I took the pressure off of myself. I took the pressure off of, I ignored society. I ignored family. I ignored friends. And I just zeroed in on almost survival mode for a while. And it got me through that first stage. And I think it's gotten me through so many of the other challenges that have come um, ahead. I, I yeah. live my life with integrity first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, when I have projects as a consultant, as a freelancer, I ask myself, what is the lesson that I can learn from that? And I keep myself open. I just say yes to projects and opportunities that are going to give me a key learning. It can be one, two or three. It doesn't matter. But I need to learn something from that to get to the next step. So it's one foot in front of the other.
1: Yeah. I just want to point out to people listening. I mean, we're all, I guess most of us here are sort of strategy nerds, but the way that you laid out your situation, new country, mortgage, two teenage kids, fresh divorce, friends and family, maybe supporting, maybe not supporting, new job, job goes that's your situation and then the way that you articulated essentially what you decided to believe that's like you reframing yourself and how you exist that's you doing strategy to and for yourself and that's what keeps me going like thinking about frameworks and what we do it's not just coming up with something cool on a creative brief It's, it's using this stuff in life uh and while someone like yourself can land your self-awareness and express your philosophy in a very clear-headed way now, we know that there could have been days and weeks of you being like, I don't know exactly what to do. Is that fair to say? Or was there a clear-headed Absolutely. Shift?
0: No, no. I think the moment that I took the pressure off of myself, and I'll bring it back to strategy. So many times we're undergone with, you need to find insight now. What's the perfect word? And oftentimes it's in front of us, but we're, we're dealing so much with the pressure that we don't see it. That could be one situation. The other situation is you've got you, you don't have enough resources or you've got, you know, uh, not enough support. Um, and this happens in life every single day, or there's so much research that distilling through it and finding the right path is difficult. So being able to focus on what, you know, right now, what, you know, what you hear right now, writing that little bit down and then stepping away from it, um, and coming back to it, it becomes that much more clear you and i mark you know we went back and forth on something that i shared with you and and you held me honest to that monogamous word i was all over the place with the data dumping i stepped away from it and as i was going through my life it was like what is that one word that one monogamous word that i can take through and and filter through this story i found it and it was like okay the rest of it doesn't matter is it perfect no You know, is it, is it, no, but it's, it's what I know today. It's what I can manage today. And what I think is going to take us forward tomorrow. Let's try it. That's then when your team comes in and uh, are you on board? Are you not, do you have a better idea? If not, let's move forward. I mean,
1: yeah. and, (laughs) and, And also, also what you're describing that that's why working in big teams and having to think in front of people and get to a decision in front of people within an hour. It's, I don't know if that's real. I've like run hundreds of workshops. Many of you have done similar But often it's just a mess and then it isn't. It's because you had a walk and you had a think or you talked to one person, but not 50 with all the people not doing the thinking, watching you to see what's going to go on the timesheets. But yeah, I I relate to that. Uh, Mathilde, take us back to one of your most in-between moments and uh, what was a hard decision that you had to make or a hard question that you had to answer for yourself?
3: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I think that what Monica and Serena were saying really resonated with me, especially the, the running analogy. Sometimes you're in it, sometimes you need to be really courageous and be like, okay, you need to step back and really, and, and, uh, Monica was mentioning as well, dealing with the pressure and, and dealing with your fears and, and for me, um, it was a big part of when I started um, the job at the agency. For me, it was quite baffling that I was being paid to basically just browse the internet for hours on end. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I didn't it, it didn't click on my brain that that was something that people actually did. And um, I battled quite a lot with it internally um, before I came to peace with it and said, okay, I, now I understand the value of it. Um, and I think that's part of... And um, Monica was saying about the data dump and and I, it, myself at the beginning, I did quite a lot of that because I was quite, um, I think that as strategists, and people that work uh, have worked and worked in strategy, we are quite curious by nature and we all are always looking and excavating and looking for uh, more and more and more. And sometimes it's, it's hard to, to take a step back and understand, okay, this is this is enough. You've got it. (laughs) Now you can work with this. And the in-between moment for me was to come to peace with the fact that that that's fine.
1: I love that. Is there a question that you're contemplating a lot now? Mathilde, not that you're in between at all now, but is there a big question that's on your mind? I mean, we're coming towards the end of the year, which seems to be an appropriate time to have existential crises. But, you know, not that I'm trying to prod you to have one or to see if you're having one. But is there like, what's a what's big question that's on your mind right now that is somehow connected to life, livelihood, and career?
3: No, definitely. Um, it's existential crisis all the time. Um, I feel like when you <laughs> when you move from very two, two di- very different environments, like I have, you always think, "Okay, I'm here now, and I quite like it." But when you were there, then you quite liked it too. So it's kind of like your heart is torn between two great parts of your life, and it's kind of like that is always an existential crisis. And obviously, in a year like like this one that I have um, gladly, and my company has allowed me to spend. Some time with my family in Lisbon as well due to the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. Again, heart torn between, and n- nothing to do with career in the sense, but it's a heart torn between two places as well that some people can relate to. Sometimes it's hard to, to come okay. to a realization on that.
1: Where do I belong? And I mean, everyone here has moved around, but usually that has an accompanying question, which is who am I in the yes. place where I might belong? And, and that's, you know, also sport for choice, right? The fact that you've got these options, you've been able to move around is great, but it also does introduce more decisions to make, which can lead to more existential angst. We do it to ourselves. That's the point.
3: Choice paralysis, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Monica, what's a big question you're contemplating right now? And thank you for that, Mathilde.
0: Am I going to stay in my apartment? Is Miami still the place for me? Uh, it's probably the same that a lot of people are asking what? How's COVID going to impact us in 2021? Yeah. Um, you know, if I get an opportunity that requires me to go into an office, how do I feel about that? I've, again, I've, I guess, like all of us here, I've been fortunate in in creating my own bubble and really being okay with converting my apartment into my workplace and my gym, and and you know, going out once a week is totally okay, or not, you know, not going out at all is okay too so i my existential questions are if I think about it uh, if I allow myself to think about it long enough is is panic for twenty twenty one because I just don't know i mm. don't know what's going to happen and and that's when i I stop myself and it's like breathe and you know do what you can today, and everything else is going to fall into place as the time comes so mm. um I think the the level of uncertainty it can kill us it it certainly has has worked on my nerves and, and it's something that I try to control on a daily basis today because I, I have no idea, Mark. <laughs> if you do, let oh. us know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Don't do that. Don't shine the light back in my face. Uh, <laughs> when you say that you're not sure if Miami is the place for you to be, what is a place for you to be? Like, what would you be looking for?
0: Thank you for that question. I have been traveling since I was six weeks old my father was in the military moving every three years was the norm. The longest I've ever stayed anywhere was 15 years in that one city in Latin America. Um, and I'm coming on 12, 13 years here in Miami. So I've, I've reached a point of, of tension, if you will, in the whole uh, life stage that I'm in, in that is this where I really want to stay? Um, that house that I had in California when I bought it, it was because I was setting roots and that was where I was going to stay. But life threw some wrenches at me and I sold that. And I told myself I was never gonna own again until I was ready to put those roots in very deep and stay for a very long time. And so I've, I'm reaching that juncture, right? Where it's, is this the place for me to to set settle in even though it's been 10 plus years? Do I need to buy? Do I need to be here forever? Uh, is this where I'm going to place my bats long term? And with COVID, I really don't know. So what is the perfect place? I don't think that exists. Um, hmm. And maybe I'm toying with life a little bit. I like having the flexibility to pack a, a bag and go. I, I live, I've, I've learned to live a very simple life and I, I pride myself in that I enjoy it minimalist as much as i can i don't i'm not a you know i'm not a hoarder i don't carry a lot of things unless it's inside of the computer i like to hoard information and knowledge um but then it's like let's put it in a backpack and go that's more yeah. my my spirit i would say
1: yeah no it's, i just find it interesting that when we are feeling in between or not that the idea of identity uh, which can come with title and role and place they kind of they go together don't they Serena, what's the well, question that you're contemplating segue. right now?
2: Well, um, the <laughs> most, yeah, the, well, I definitely was and I still will never give up my 917, but I'm a, definitely a New Yorker and I, uh, we did not foresee staying in Miami this long. So, yeah, we're at a place where we're raising our son in this
1: place that,
2: you know. Who knows that, you know, that's not, we're not. What, it. Not
1: what just happened in this interview? I where know. did you go? What are you not saying? I feel like you're about to say something. And no, then you, it's
2: just, you think about all these things about how place is important and uh, yeah. just brought that up. And when place becomes You comes,
1: sad. what? sad. Give it to me. Are you worried about where you're bringing up your child?
2: A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit.
1: What are you worried about? It's just
2: different than what I grew up with where, you know, I went to public school in New York, I mean, in Westchester. So, I mean, it's yeah. not like the main streets of-
1: you know. <laughs> That's fancy. It's fancy and everyone talks about how all the tax yeah. money up there goes into these fancy public schools. And, well, it
2: paid off and it was it was good education. So yeah. I, um, you know, I'm just exploring all that. And we're doing the best we can with that. And luckily, Jake's been great. Um, but that is just not a reality in terms of our entire family moving. But I just keep remaining hopeful that remote becomes more of an option, more of the time, let's just say. Yeah. Um, to keep, you know, When place doesn't matter, what does that do to work, right? And what okay. does that do to careers? But the other, the, you asked about the existential thing. And I, honestly, my most recent one was obviously folding my startup. You know, I had that idea for you know, four or five years before I even actually did something about it. And it got to the point where I re- literally just, I don't know why this, I'm not sick, but I just thought if I die before I try this, I will regret it. And I had saved some money and I was able to think I, I, you know, I meant to freelance. Let me go back to freelance so I can pursue this. There was an accelerator for women that was free, that was, you know, designed for women that, um, you know, would run during the school year instead of Y Combinator, which took you away and just wasn't a reality. And it was all these opportunities kind of lined up at once. And uh, I went for it and I, you know, got into the accelerator. I feel like I learned a ton. Learning is obviously a huge thing. a huge, you know, theme for strategists. I mean, as long as you're learning and you're growing, Mm -hmm. I think you're contributing. And that to me is the linear path. I mean, a lot of people didn't even see how going from, you know, ad sales to finance to advertising was linear, but to me, it was completely, you know, linear with growth. I I felt that, yeah, you could bring so much more. And um, even with the startup, that was my whole kind of um, way to make myself feel better for the money I was spending You know, on, on building something was that I was going to learn something and I was going to learn something in the field of UX and, you know, and all, all everything else that came with, you know, building a startup that I could reapply to my career, which I have now more actively tried to because a lot of things just went kind of down with the pandemic for a lot of reasons why we just had to and it was a very hard decision to recognize when you're running, I thought that was a brilliant analogy that you just, you kind of have to slow down and recognize you might need to steer to another path. And Mm -hmm. that sort of clinging to maybe, you know, what else did we do wrong? You know, dissecting and trying to address was taking so much energy away from actually what, you know, I really wanted to get back into work. I, I, I don't want to apologize for also loving to work on a team. And I do like to work at a, you know, as a salary, I I know there's a lot, you give up for that, but you also, when you, I don't know how to charge for my overthink or my, you know, like my, you know, my,
1: definitely not by the minute.
2: No. And, you know, and I've always given it away. You know, I take great pride in my work, so I always work extra, but um, yeah, it's hard to, it's very hard to figure that out. And, you know, I can relate to a lot of that Serena. And, and, and being able to,
0: to have the courage to shut things down that you've dreamt of, and that didn't really pan out the way that I kind of settled it with myself, with that horrible inner voice that we all have was, well, what did you learn? You learned a, B and C that you like and a, B and C that you dislike. And that's the story moving forward. You learned, right. And, and you still have an entrepreneurial spirit and you understand business that much better. But working yes. with teams is pretty cool sometimes, even when you want to throttle them or you know beat right. them up because they're not aligned right. to who you right. are or whatever it is. But, but knowing that you have those resources, it's okay. And I've, I've, I'm hearing the struggle with you and that's why I'm jumping in because I've struggled with that a lot as well. I think when I went freelance, it was like, all right, this is my path forward forever. And again, life throws you a lot of different things and nothing is forever. And it's okay to say, yeah, you know, this was a fun ride, but I think I want to go and try that again. Yeah. Because the other thing is circumstances have changed. So your experience, you have changed as a human being. The experience you may have had in advertising or in corporate or in finance, you know, five, six, seven years ago is different today and will definitely be different moving forward. If, if I have to say anything, it's thank God COVID has given us a clean canvas. So things will be different, we hope. And
2: resiliency. I mean, we are.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and Serena, it's it's funny. I've I've never been in a job interview where someone's asked me what your superpower is and then realized that it's sadness. Like, I am very good at feeling it and sensing it. And so I, I just sensed your energy shift, right? And it's funny because my final question will connect to what I'm going to say here is that over the years, I've been better at catching the sadness that I feel which I can wake up with um and thinking that it's because I need to do something creative or I need to shift so the word shift connects a bit more to the word sad for me now where I'm like what are you sad come on we're gonna do this again you're gonna be sad (sighs) what are you gonna do about it what are you gonna shift And, and so I've I'm way better at paying attention to that these days um and that connects to the the final question uh I just wanted to give context. I didn't make, mean to make fun. I just felt your energy shift. And uh, I was like, we've got to go in here. Because honestly, when I <laughs> feel that energy shift in an interview like this, or even when I'm doing qualitative research, I'm like, okay, now we're real. And that, yeah. so I, I get excited about it. And then I yeah. realize that it could come across as flippant. And I don't mean to be like that.
2: Oh, no. Yeah.
1: So the final question is, you know, I, I just mentioned how for me, the idea or uh, feeling, feeling sad in between, during my in-between times, I, I sometimes am better able these days to connect to the idea of, needing to create or needing to shift needing to make a change when you think about some of your in-between times whether you're in them not uh, now or not uh, like what what are some of the self what's the most useful self-talk that you say to yourself oh my questions what are some of the most useful things you say to yourself when you sense an intense in-between time your aphorisms matilde you're nodding does that mean you've got an immediate answer
3: I think so. I think it's, it's going to sound really naff, but it's believe in yourself and you have to, you have to be your best cheerleader. And this doesn't count, come natural to me. God knows I have an awful lot of imposter syndrome still to work on, but you, you need to be your own, your own cheerleader. And if you have a partner or someone that can, a significant other that can also be your cheerleader on that, uh, that also quite helps. You need to. You need to think that you might not be the cleverest or the most interesting person in the room, but sometimes you, you will have you will have different point of views that other people haven't thought of, especially with the background that um, that you come with um, that are valuable. And sometimes you just have to get yourself out there and say what you're thinking, and and it, maybe it will sound silly, or maybe it'll sound great, and you'll make a great impression. And and i'll help you in the future yeah. um
1: yeah the, the believe in yourself i want to throw a quick anecdote into that one i did martial arts for a long time and my my master my sifu, would say when doing more of a self-defense class which wasn't what we always did but something that was more built around self-defense he was like if you don't believe that you should be defended and protected why should anybody else help you and that's always always stuck with me and it's a slightly more visceral way of saying, believe in yourself, which looks great on a Pinterest board. But when you put it in that more primal term, you're like, yeah, you know what? I should want to defend myself and get away from this perilous situation. it's, it's more extreme than what you said, but, uh, some of our brains are extreme.
3: No, no. But it, I think that's absolutely great. It's, it's, it's a bit like the world is w- absolutely wild and you have to fend for yourself. And if, if you don't, again, Pinteresty boardy, but if you don't, if you don't do it and if you don't drive your own initiatives forward, then no one is going to, no one is going to do that for you. So I think it's a bit what Monica and Serena were saying as well earlier, earlier, which was, um, identify exactly what you want and go after it, even if that means having to give it up later.
2: Uh, because you'll learn something in the meantime, for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Serena?
2: Well, yeah, that's, I think that the learning's the thing, right? I mean, that's the growth. I, I actually, I don't know if I trust anyone who doesn't have imposter syndrome to a degree, because I do think the way you put it, Thank Mark, you. in, in your book, <laughs> it, you know, it is a striving to do better. And I think um, there's a really a great movie, if you haven't seen Jerry Seinfeld's documentary called The C- Comedian. And it shows how even he, he, at the top of his game, and it sort of juxtaposes with it, uh, a very confident comedian. But anyway, it just yeah. shows him feeling that impossible. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld, right? You know, and so mm-hmm. I just think it's a pervasive um, uh, side effect of wanting to do a good job. I mean, you know, and wanting to, to, to do good work. And, you know, mm-hmm. there was a sign up at, at YNR when I first started out where I was, you know, around a lot of amazing talent and great culture. And, and they had this huge sign, good is the enemy of great. You've heard that before, but I, you know, that is kind of what we're burdened with um, because quite honestly, you can make ads, uh, user experience without strategy. I mean, people do it all the time. We have to sing for our supper, in this field, and we have to prove our value every day. And I love that. I, and, and that's so rewarding when you do. The problem is when you also have to fight for your right to do your job when you find and, and you find yourself in those cultures. But really, the, the the ability to sort of add value in a really meaningful way in a bunch of different places, you know, um, in a brand's kind of health um, and growth is really rewarding work. Um, and so, those might have segues or swerves as I called them in Mm -hmm. terms of discovering, you know, different parts of where you can have an impact. Um, But they all have led to growth, you know, I guess for me.
1: Okay. So we've got believe in yourself. We've got uh, learning and the idea of growing as a way to detach yourself from that linear, the idea of not being on a linear path, potentially being failure. Monica, how do you talk yourself through these in between times?
0: I think I went through a stage where I was, I call my, the, my inner voice sometimes gremlins. If anybody, you know, Serena talking about movies and, and pop culture, uh, gremlins, right? These were the nasty gremlins coming after me and, and they live inside of each of us. And they, I definitely have my gremlins. I shared that one time many, many years ago with a group of, of uh, female entrepreneurs. And one woman stood up and she said, do you remember in the movie, what happens in the end? the mean gremlins actually become good gremlins. So how are you converting those mean gremlins into good gremlins? What are you, how are you using that power? Right. And I had never considered it a power. Um, so the way that I do it now is I sit with them and I face them. And I think through a lot of self-help and talking and writing and reading and years of experience and maybe even it's just flat out maturity. I don't know. There are moments when I acknowledge that they're there and I tell them to take a seat in the back and put their seatbelts on because we need to move forward. And that's hard. It's, It's hard work. Very recently, I mean, just in a tangible sense, I worked through a project. I was scared to death about sharing it but I had an obligation to share it and it was an international forum and I felt very intimidated because 95% of the forum was male and came from a different world than I did and I was stretching myself. So I kept, you know, there was that gremlin standing there, that male nasty gremlin looking at me, bullying me into playing small and I had to stand up and, and say, okay, this might blow up in my face, but I need to learn from it. So here we go. This is not perfect. It's good enough. It's okay. And let's move forward. And of the five people that saw it, I had two right back to me. One that said, I'm sorry that you didn't find a viability for this project. You know, Have you thought about it this way? I got good feedback there. Another person who gave me a decent score, but didn't really give me any feedback. And it wasn't as painful as I thought. And so my mean gremlins had a bad day because I didn't feed them, you know, and it was, I think it's important to feed our good gremlins and to sit with the bad gremlins and to listen to them because they have something to share with us about ourselves and learn that about ourselves. And it's a lot of interior mirroring and hard work. If you're into meditation, if you're into any type of self-observation, as humans, we have this ability to watch ourselves work. Mm-hmm. And if you can step out from yourself and watch yourself work through a situation, it's, it has been very fulfilling for me and has helped me in, I would say, the darker moments, especially during COVID when I have been in my bubble in this great apartment that I have. Um, it, it, it has become sometimes a bit of a jail. And I think that happens in our minds. So I've, I've done a lot of work there.
1: I love it. I really appreciate you all being here today and sharing such personal stories and, uh, and wisdom. I know the topic is slightly abstract and esoteric, this idea of being in between, but I feel like there was some really useful material for people here. Uh, I will, uh, in the podcast when we publish this, I'll put links to all of the places that you are on the internet, but um, thank you for being here. Thank you for turning up. Thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for letting me ask you about your emotions and your lives. I appreciate it. It's an honor. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. It was an honor. Thank you, Mark. It was great.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Have a good day. Bye.